All right, we have a great episode of Side Retired, the only podcast coming at you guys today for a special Astros report. Brian McTaggart will be joining us on today's episode. So Nico, let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Side Retired, the MLB podcast. It's Dylan Campione joined alongside Nico Fernandez as always. And Nico, before we introduce our guest, how are you doing today? Can't complain. You know, Tuesday was, you know, looking at my computer and I saw that Shohei likes Fenway. So in my eyes, you know, he's locked in for the Red Sox. So, you know, January is coming around and we got the best player in baseball. So I can't complain. (laughs) Well, of course, Nico is already showcasing his Red Sox fan bias that he has on the show here. But we're, of course, really excited today to be joined by Brian McTaggart. He is the Houston Astros reporter for MLB.com, celebrating his 20th season as a beat reporter for the Houston Astros here in 2023, a big milestone, and congrats on that, Mr. McTaggart. But yeah. thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 20 years. Uh, I've seen a little bit of everything on the beat in those 20 years, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess the first question I have for you based on that is, what was it like year one being a beat reporter? And then what's the biggest difference from now in 2023 covering the team? Yeah, I guess, you know, in year one, I remember my first day, it was a 2004. I remember my first day walking in the spring training um, and I didn't get there right away. I think I got down there on March 1st. So they'd been going for a couple of weeks, but I walked into the clubhouse and uh, there was Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit. Uh, Jeff Kent, Roy Oswalt, Lance Berkman. I mean, there were stars at every corner of the clubhouse. And I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And, you know, I was a little bit taken aback by it. And, and I, you know, I grew up in Houston, so I certainly had followed Bagwell and Biggio their whole careers. Um, so going around and introducing myself to the guys, it was it was really nerve wracking. But, um, you know, with every passing day, we we're a little bit more comfortable. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, Biggio's calling you by your name and uh, next thing you know, you know, you, you know, you, you have a relationship with him, you have his phone number and you're calling him in the off season and, um, and you're just, uh, sort of part of the, the crew that covers the team. So probably the biggest difference definitely is social media because back then there was no social media. So, um, you had to, if you were competing against somebody for stories, whether it was another news outlet or a TV station, you sort of had to wait to see what they had in the newspaper the next day or on their website. I think back then the Houston Chronicle website, which is where I started Houston Chronicle, uh, it would update every night at midnight. So if you had a story, uh, you really had nowhere to yell to people you had a story unless you put it on the website, but you had to wait till midnight for the website to update. So <laughs> if you had breaking news, nobody really knew about it. There was no social media. Um, so, uh, people would always refresh websites at midnight, newspapers, see who had what stories, and then they'd be in the paper the next day too. But now with social media, you know, if you get a scoop or if you have a story, I mean, you get it out to the masses instantaneously. And if if you're at a ball game and you look at all the computers, it seems like 99% of the people are on X uh, tweeting about the game or, or tweeting observations or what have you. But it's, everything's instantaneous now. There's There's no waiting for anything. I think someone's about to come to my door. So if my dog barks, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> no worries. No worries. And obviously, again, you covering one of the most, for like the last decade, one of the most successful franchises. I mean, news gets out pretty quick. Well, what's it been like, you know, 
the Astros in the last decade when they had a lot of successful runs, obviously a lot of controversy, covering them and in again, like you said, the world of where everything's instantaneous. Yeah, it's been uh it's been wild. I mean, um, you know, they when I started covering them, they were in the National League. Um and they there was a three-year period when they moved to the AL that they lost a hundred games in a row. Um, they've been sold to uh, uh, another their owner and he's come in and changed the uniforms and now they, then they won 100 games in a row three years in a row and of course they've won a couple of world series titles they've they've changed spring training locations uh been wrapped up in scandals they've had uh, they've nailed the number one pick in the draft they've botched the number one pick in the draft i mean there's literally not anything that hasn't <laughs> happened in the last uh 10 years really that or you know certainly going back 20 years that um you know i think i haven't been able to cover and you learn from every experience you know you know, covering the sign stealing scandal wasn't fun. I mean, that's, you know, but that's part of it. You have to roll up your hands and get dirty and it happened and you report on it and, and you be as straightforward as you can. And you go from there covering a team that wins a world series is a lot of fun, but also a lot of work because you're covering games um, into November um, and you don't really get any days off in the playoffs. The travel is brutal. So it's a real grind as well. So, um, you know, I, I think the baseball beat is the biggest grind of any beat in sports just because of the day-to-dayness of it, the amount of travel. Um, it's not like that in the NFL. It's not like that in the NBA. So you really have to love baseball and you have to, you know, they call us seam heads, the people who are baseball beat writers who really love it. You have to be a seam head. You know, it's not something that, you know, everyone's cut out to do. Absolutely. And one of the things you just mentioned, though, is that sometimes there are some things you have to report on that probably aren't the best in the world. The cheating scandal is definitely one of those. But you also mentioned earlier, as a beat reporter, you're around the team every day. You build up these relationships, as you mentioned with Craig Biggio. So what is it like having to balance those two different aspects of, hey, sometimes I just have to be a reporter and state the facts. But at the same time, you have a big human relationship with the guys that you're writing about. Yeah, that's always a delicate balance to watch. but. Um... I think if you're just fair and you report what you see and you're honest, I mean, I'm not a columnist, so I'm not out there uh, throwing out a lot of opinions on this and that. I'm writing what I see, right? So if uh, if a player goes over uh, five with five strikeouts, I'm going to write that. I mean, it's not it's out there. Everyone saw it. You can look at the box score. But in the same way, if the player is doing well, I'm going to write that um, also. I mean, a few years ago, a player who was early in his career with the Astros, who went on to become a star player elsewhere and is still playing, um, did in fact go 0 for 5 with five strikeouts, which I put on Twitter. And he walked in the clubhouse after the game and saw me and sort of yelled loudly. He's like, <laughs> oh, there he is. He had to point out to the world, uh, I struck out five times. And some another player spoke up. I think it was a relief pitcher who kind of yelled from the back of the room and says, well, don't strike out five times. So, um, And it was, it was fine after that. I mean, he was just frustrated. But um, yeah, you just have to keep it professional. They know you got a job to do. Don't take cheap, cheap shots at them. Don't make it personal. Just just write about what you see. And if, if they're struggling, um, that's sometimes when some of the best quotes or some of the best stories come is if the guys who are down and out and uh, trying to turn their, their seasons around or their careers around. Yeah, of course. And obviously the day-to-day is something that's just a real grind. Like you said, you from like looking at like interviewing a lot of beat reporters like that we've had over the, the year, it's a real grind, just like you said. Like you have to really love baseball and like interviewing guys like you and other beat reporters. That's the one thing I've always taken from it. It's like these guys at the end of the day, you really have to love the game if you're gonna be in there for a full 162, just good, bad, ugly, you're you're reporting. So, like again, to you and everyone, like it's just a like a thank you because like without you guys, we honestly wouldn't know anything that happens in baseball. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, 
you know, you, you sort of have a, 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 a you know, a inside access. I hate that word insider when people call themselves insiders, because even though I'm in the clubhouse every day, I don't consider myself an insider um, because a lot of stuff goes on behind closed doors that I certainly don't know about. But um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if it's every day you show up at the clubhouse at three o'clock and you're around baseball and baseball players, and then you're there in the, in the press box to midnight. And then next day you do it again and again and again. And it can get really tedious. Um, and then you go on the road and you do it on the road for a week. So thankfully at MLB.com, we do get time off. I mean, we do get a couple weeks off a year and I, you know, I don't go on every road trip. So it's it's nice sometimes to go, uh, you know, fly to Anaheim for a series. Then if they're going to go play the Rockies on the weekend, I can come home and sort of get a blow before they start a homestand. Absolutely. And then another thing that I found when looking up your sort of bio on your description is that You've been a Houston guy through and through. You went to University of Houston. You wrote for the Chronicle. So sort of at what point slash did you know, hey, I want to be this Astros beat reporter. This is the dream job. This is covering the team I've grown up rooting for. Yeah, I don't think I ever really thought that. I mean, I, I went to the University of Houston, uh, one major. Well, I, I did major in broadcasting, uh, broadcast journalism. And um Right after I got out of high school, I got a job working the scoreboard at the Astrodome. So, I mean, I was—I was—I think I was 18 years old, and I was the guy who had, would hit, who would hit B for ball or S for strike. Or um, I started doing that for Houston Oilers games, uh, University of Houston football games when they played in the Astrodome as well. So, um, any event at the Astrodome, I was there working. And um, I started to meet some people because you, you go in the, the media uh, lunchroom during baseball games before the games and you meet people. I met the sports editor at the Houston Post, which no longer exists. And he said, hey, when baseball's over, come help us out on Friday nights for high school football because high school football is big in Houston. Uh, they had all these people calling from stadiums all over Houston with with the uh, game results and they needed people to answer the phones, take the stats. So I started doing that. Uh, then I started writing recaps about the high school football games uh, while I was going to the University of Houston. So uh, suddenly I was very far along in in the, the print journalism side of it. I, I think I had my first story uh, in the Houston Post on the front page of the sports section when I was 20 years old. I don't think I'd even taken a, a broadcast journalism class yet at U of H. It was all just the basics. So I was really far ahead in the journalism side of things. And um, I mean, I went ahead and got my degree in broadcasting, but I knew probably halfway through college that, you know, I probably had a job at, at the post when it ended. And I did. And then it folded about a month later and I was jobless. But um, that was that was sort of my on the job training was working part time at the Houston Post covering high school sports. And um, so, yeah, the, the dream was to be a broadcaster like Milo Hamilton, who covered that, who called the Astros games. You know, that never happened. And I kind of got sidetracked into writing and um, I covered high schools for many, many years all over Houston, driven all over Houston, uh, covering all kinds of high school events. And then at the, at the Chronicle in, in 2001, I started covering Rice University, which was a lot of fun because they had the number one baseball team in the country. Uh, they won the World Series when I was on the beat. So that was a lot of fun to cover uh, that that special team and all the talent that they had, I think six or seven big leaguers. And then uh one day I was actually at Rice baseball practice early in the the 04 season when the, the editor called me and said, hey, we want you to help cover the Astros. And so it uh, took a long time to get there. I mean, I was 33 years old at that point, so I, I grinded a lot. But I, I never really said, man, I want to cover the Astros one day. I, I just wanted to write and report and cover sports. And 
um, yeah, it was sort of a, you know, it was a big decision to make to, to make that kind of commitment. Cause like I said, it was, it was every day. I had a young family. I knew it'd be gone a lot, but I knew if I wanted to keep advancing in my career, it was something that I had to do. Yeah, of course. And obviously Houston, just like you said, I mean, high school football, I remember once I was going on a trip with my dad and I went to see a high school Texas football game. And that's, it's like the equivalent to like college games. Like it's, <laughs> It's crazy. Like I never understood it until I went and just like that's Texas sports. So the fact that you're in Texas is just amazing. Like Houston, is there any like moment where you were like, uh, like when was the moment that you're like, I want to do journalism. Like I want to go into broadcasting because again, a lot of people, they have a lot of different routes. And you kind of said that from early, you kind of knew that you wanted to get into broadcasting. When was kind of that moment where you knew that you wanted to get into like that world? Well, um, I was always a sports fan growing up. I would always, you know, watch games constantly on TV, watch Astros, Rockets, Oilers. I mean, I watched every game. Um, and it, it struck me at an early age, probably 12, 13 years old. I don't know, maybe a little bit later than that, where I would watch games. Uh, if I watched them with my dad or my my friends, um, I would say something about the game, some observation, and then it would be said on TV at that time. And I'll never forget it. The Rockets were playing the Lakers in the playoffs. I think it was 86 I can't remember. I think James Worthy, the Lakers, was involved and Ralph Sampson. Um, but I think James Worthy was on the ground with the ball and Ralph Sampson, who's 7-4 center for the Rockets, came over and tried to take it away from him. And he was standing up and he couldn't get it from James Worthy. And I remember telling my dad how crazy that was that Ralph Sampson couldn't get the ball standing up from James Worthy on the ground. And then like the announcer immediately sort of said the same thing. And so stuff like that kept happening. I was like, well, maybe, maybe I got a knack for this kind of thing. Cause uh, you know, I'm pointing out some things that, uh, you know, maybe everyone at home is saying the same thing. I don't know, but it just kind of, it kind of lit a fire under me that, Hey, maybe I could do this. No, absolutely. I love it. And then you've also now gotten to cover over the last 20 years, a lot of different Astros teams, obviously the world series team, 2017 had the scandal around it. Now we entered the dusty Baker era of, I guess, a couple seasons here. And now it seems like, and I guess I'm not sure if it's three different eras, but it's three different managers in the hinge to Baker and now to the Joe Espada reign. What do you think that's like? A, what was it like sort of covering that AJ Hinch led team? What was it like? Obviously, a different philosophy with Dusty Baker, a veteran type of manager. And now I know you've probably interacted with Joe Espada because he's been around the team for a couple of years. But what do you think is going to happen next year with an Espada led team? Yeah, Hinch and Baker were very, uh, very different managers. Um, and they both, they both uh, were very positive experiences for me as a beat writer. I mean, Hinch was a he was a second time manager, but I think uh, he, he and he'd be the first to tell you that he really wasn't as prepared as he should have been the first time around with Arizona. So I, I didn't know him much at all when he got hired and um, immediately reached reached out to him in the offseason and, and had a breakfast with him and uh, got to know him really well and, and really enjoyed covering him. I mean, a, a very, very smart guy, uh, went to Stanford, had worked in some front offices, I think could have been a baseball general manager had he wanted to be. But, um, you know, his goal was to be in uniform. And um, it was a uh, it was a good experience. And then I got to see the Astros go from this 111 loss laughing stock, And then two years later, they make the playoffs. And I hadn't covered playoff baseball in 10 years. And it was a completely new generation of Astros, different you know, different teams. They were in the American League now. So it was all kind of new. But AJ was great to deal with every day. Um, uh, and then Dusty coming in was just a totally different experience. Someone who had been a manager for a long time, who had accomplished a lot of things, knew everybody. Um, I didn't think at any point he would probably ever know my name, even though I was around him every day. But of course, you know, he did after a while. But um, 
while Hinch Hinch was the kind of manager who would you know answer your questions, give you information, um, give you the things that you needed to you know make sure you're reporting things accurately. You know, Dusty wasn't as interested in that as he was uh, just being a guy who would sit around and tell stories about the good old days. And we all know that he drops tons of names and. He's seen everything there is in baseball. He knows everybody there is in baseball. So that was a lot of fun hearing all those stories. But uh, also at times when we needed information, we just didn't get it just because I I don't think Dusty was real interested in giving us information just because he had done this so long. It was just like, you know, whatever. But he was always great to me. I had a great relationship with him, and I was really happy to see him win the World Series. I think a spot is going to be cut a little bit more from the A.J. Hinch cloth. I mean, Hinch hired him. He's a younger, energetic guy who's, you know, first time shot looking to prove himself. But, um, you know, he's a guy that is going to come to us, I think, and, and be really, really good for the media. Um, a guy that I talk to almost every day during the season when he came out to, to do the infield drills. And I'm, I was really thrilled to find out he got the job. Yeah, obviously, a spotter with the new reign. It's going to be it's weird because I've always I like the fact that it's him with like a very veteran roster. I like kind of that balance of being a new guy. What do you think's the outlook for the Astros kind of of this offseason, like kind of needs they think and going into next year? What's going to be the new look as spotted team with like expectations? I mean, they're going to be really good again. Um, I mean, they return almost everybody. Uh, I think they return eight of their nine starting position players. They return their entire rotation. Uh, the back end of their bullpen is back. So they're going to have to make some additions to their bullpen because they did lose some free agents. They're going to have to find a backup catcher. But after that, it's pretty much a turnkey job. I mean, Joe's pretty lucky. He's stepping into a team that, you know, I think was one win away from winning the World Series. I mean, they beat the Rangers at home in six and seven. They're, they're going to beat the D-backs in the World Series, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, he, he's he's been handed the keys here to um, this franchise and the window of contention is very much still wide open. So a lot of it, Depends on health, uh, you know, how, how healthy is the rotation going to be? Uh, what kind of changes will be made to uh, to the rotation? I mean, the bullpen, who are they going to add? But, you know, I think uh, I think if this team's healthy, Joe's got a chance to win a World Series in his first year as a manager. I mean, they, they could be that good. So uh, a lot of things could happen between now and then. But, you know, he's going to have a, a very uh, experienced team. He's going to have an experienced coaching staff. And um, just if he doesn't mess it up, they're going to be right there at the end. And it should be a fun division with the Astros and Rangers, the two most recent World Series winners in the same division. I love it. Absolutely. I think that one of the key things with the Astros is no matter what they do in the offseason, they're going to be a competitive team. They've built up this young core that's now developed over the last few years that's come together really nicely. Although it is an interesting spot for them. I know Jordan got his extension, but there are a couple of guys now, Tuve, Bregman, and Kyle Tucker, who are nearing those, I guess, extensions or, I guess, let them go in free agency period. I think those are three guys off the top of my head that come to mind that are in need of a new contract relatively soon. Can the Astros afford them all, or does it eventually reach a point where it's similar to Springer, it's similar to Correa, where I guess there's guys internally, Chaz McCormick, Jeremy Pena, that eventually come up and replace them? Yeah, I think it's – can they afford them? Probably, but will they? I don't think so. I mean – you know, Alex Bregman's going to want a, you know, Fernando Tatis type contract, uh, even though Tatis is four or five years younger. I mean, Bregman's been a much more accomplished player. He's probably not going to perform at the level he did in 18, 19, but he's still a top five third baseman. Um, and a lot of these guys want money based on what they've done in the past. So even though he's about to complete a hundred million dollar deal, I, 
I think he's going to want another one of these, you know, 250, $300 million deals. And Astros just do not go there. That is just not how they build teams. They would rather pay you, uh, you know, a, a, a bigger an- annual value over three years and then just not be locked into you for seven, eight years. I mean, you mentioned they let Correa walk, uh, win a World Series the next year. They let Garrett Cole walk. Um, be nice to have him, but, you know, they still win a World Series without him. Springer, they win a World Series without him. So it's really worked out well for the for them to let these guys go in free agency. You know, they signed Jordan Alvarez uh, last May to a, you know, a very team-friendly deal, $115 million, I think, six years I mean, he hit. If Jordan Alvarez was hitting the free agent market, he he would be a guy that could get three hundred million. So that's the kind of stuff they look to do. I think they will sign Altuve, who's a free agent after next year, just because I don't think that anyone can see Altuve playing anywhere else. I think he wants to play here. Bregman, I think, is going to come down to money. Um, and uh, you know, is he going to be willing maybe to take fewer years to to continue this? What they have going in Houston. I mean, he's one of the few players that's won both World Series titles here with the Astros. Um, Kyle Tucker, I just don't think he is real motivated to sign an extension right now. He's still got a couple of years, but uh, I certainly could see him at that point testing free agency. So I think Altuve is almost certain he will resign. Bregman, I think, is probably 50-50. And even though Tucker's a year after that, I think it's I would think it's probably less than 50% he would sign with the Astros at this point. Yeah, and I think the Astros would be fine because one thing, and I kind of want to ask you about this because it's some teams just have this knack that I've never understood. It's they can let whatever guy go like Correa perfect example. He, he leaves and everyone thinks like, wow, you guys let your young star just absolutely. It's going to be brutal. And then Jeremy Pena comes and it's just like, nothing ever happened. Wins a gold glove, wins world series MVP. Same thing happened with Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole leaves and everyone thinks that the world's going to end. And then Christian Javier and Fran Valdez come up and they're great. What's different about the Astros that just seems that they could honestly, like tomorrow, they could wipe their team clean. And for some reason, they'll bring up nine guys and five pitchers that will just make it work. How, how In the inner workings, what makes them unique? Well, yeah, they have very good player development. Um, they they drafted very well for a few years, um, even though their, their minor league system now is is not what it used to be just because they traded so many guys the last few years. Just to, And they did it again last year or this season, trading two guys for Verlander, their top two prospects. They've also done very well internationally. I mean, they, they've had nine of the last 10 years, they've had a top five finisher and rookie of the year. Uh, including a couple of wins. And a lot of those guys are have been international signings. You mentioned Christian Javier, Fraber Valdez, Brian Abreu, they're, they're great setup, man. Um, Jose Urquidy is another one. Guys who signed a little bit later, who you know weren't these 16-year-old signings, they signed at 19, 20, in some cases 21 years old, not for a lot of money. They've really done a, a great job scouring the international market for some hidden gems and then have done a really good job developing those guys. I mean, they hit on some big time draft picks too. I mean, they had Correa and Bregman, they were, and Tucker, they were all top five overall picks in the draft. Um, and they've made some pretty good, pretty shrewd trades as well. You know, the Granky trade, the Garrett Cole trade, Garrett Cole trade was a huge one, the Verlander trade um, and all these things. So, um, and also what we talked about earlier, they've not just totally destroyed their payroll by extending these guys. So it's, it's just been a very, very successful formula that, you know, not a lot of teams go down this path. But, you know, they're, they're sort of being challenged right now like they haven't been before in that the team's getting a little bit older. They, they don't have the high end prospects coming up like they used to. And so how are they going to keep this going for the future? Um, you know, it might be a little hard to do in the next, you know, four or five years. So maybe this window is is narrowing a little bit, but I don't think as long as, 
you know, the same ownership team is here, that this window will ever close. They're going to try to find ways to be competitive and win. Absolutely. And you have mentioned his name a couple of times. Justin Verlander is our resident Mets fan here on the podcast. I do have a little bit of interest in Justin Verlander here, but um, sort of take us through, and I think it's three kind of monumental days that talk about the Astros franchise of basically the last decade. And that's 2017 August trade deadline. So it was a weird, that was still around when the Astros acquired Verlander. And then I guess to this off season, when Verlander ditched the Astros and came to the Mets. And I think that was like right after DeGrom left for the Mets. So they pivoted to Verlander and then everything hit the fan with the Mets this year. And all of a sudden he's back in an Astros Jersey, basically after his study abroad semester in New York was over. So what were those three days like as a journalist covering it? Did you expect Verlander to come to the Astros in 17? Did it seem that the Mets were just bidding like crazy for him in the offseason? And then basically the chances that he comes back less than six months later. Yeah, 2017 was weird because you're right. It was the the trade deadline at the end of August, which no longer exists. But Houston had just been hit by you know Hurricane Harvey. And so uh, the city was on edge. There was flooding and destruction everywhere. Um, the Astros had played really well all season, but they had sort of slumped in the month of August. So, um, and now they're stuck on the road for a long time. So the, the, it was just not a great time in Houston at that point. And I think when they announced, you know, late that night or when it was reported that they were getting Verlander, it was sort of a it was sort of a lift for the city. And that, boy, this horrible month of August is over, and now they got Verlander. You know, you know, let's go and. Um, if you remember the non-waiver trade deadline in July 31st, when the Astros really didn't make an impact move other than trading for Francisco Liriano, you know, Dallas Keuchel popped off a little bit and said, we should have went out and done more. We have a chance to win it. And then, uh, you know, a month later, lo and behold, they did. You know, I remember hearing about the rumors and hearing that it might happen. I remember going to bed that night. Uh, I was watching TV in bed and, and my cell phone was on my nightstand and it was down and I, I could sort of see it light up out of the corner of my eye, maybe at 11. And so I picked it up and someone had texted me and said the Astros might be getting Verlander tonight. So I quickly got out of bed and went into my office and uh, ended up calling uh, Astros owner Jim Crane at one point. Uh, he told me he was really busy and to call him back. And after it sort of been reported that the trade was done, uh, I was able to get him on the phone and um, and, and then Verlander was so good for the Astros that year in the regular season, the playoffs and obviously winning the World Series. And I think when he left this after last season, it was not a surprise. They, there's no way they were going to give him the kind of money that that he was going to want. Like we said earlier, it's just not the way they do business. So I, I think everyone had braced themselves for that, that it was coming back. But I had no idea he would be back in a Houston uniform um, and so, you know, in such a short period of time. I think when they traded Max Scherzer, to the Rangers was when you were like, oh, okay, well, wonder if they're going to trade Verlander too. And then poking around, there was some real interest in bringing him back. But even then, it, it was going to cost a lot. And the Astros, you know, paid a high price sending their top two prospects to the Mets. But it, it was really strange after they traded for him. Uh, we were in New York, Yankee Stadium, walking in the clubhouse, and he was sitting in the clubhouse doing a crossword puzzle. And it, <laughs> it was like he'd never left. And that's what everyone sort of wrote. All the beat writers sort of wrote the same story, but it was an obvious angle. It was like, Justin Verlander sitting in the Astros clubhouse doing a crossword puzzles like like he never left. And then, he you know, he came back and, and pitched pretty well for them. And, um, you know, it was a big reason why they were one win away from the World Series. Absolutely. And I think there was that fun speech when the Astros won the <laughs> AL West where he's like, I was even gone for a couple of weeks. And it was yeah. a sort of fun. Justin Verlander seems like that veteran leader in that clubhouse. And definitely some of the younger Astros fans might be one of their favorite players at this point because 
it'll definitely be an interesting debate when the Hall of Fame does indeed happen of 15 years with the Tigers, but a lot of success with the Houston Astros too as to which franchise he goes under. I don't think he'll go into the Hall of Fame as a New York Met, but that's just the tiny little suspicion <laughs> I have here. But yeah, um, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at everything he's done with the Astros, you know, two World Series, uh, ALCS MVP through his third no hitter. Um, got his 3,000 strikeout, you know, his, his 200th career win. He's done a lot of things. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Nolan Ryan, who played nine seasons with the Astros, but finished his career in his 40s with the Rangers, and he he got his five, uh, 300th win with the Rangers, 5,000 strikeout through two no-hitters, did all this stuff with the Rangers at the end of his career, and even though he only played there for five years, five out of his 27 years in the big leagues, he has a, a Rangers cap on his plaque. So, um yeah, I, I, you know, Justin's still got a couple more years in Houston to rack up some accolades. And I, I think when he retires, that's going to be a very interesting debate. Does he go in as a Tiger where he was so good for so long or an Astros team that, he, you know, he's going to wind up playing seven, eight years, win a couple of World Series and, you know, accumulate all these uh, all these awards. Uh, ultimately, it's going to be down up to the Hall of Fame with, with Justin's input. But uh, I certainly wouldn't rule out an Astros cap on that plaque at this point. Absolutely. And I do have to ask, did you have a favorite player growing up as a big Houston sports guy? Yeah, I think growing up, my, my favorite player on the Astros was Terry Poole, who was a, a left-hand hitting outfielder, just a, a very good hitter. He's from Canada. Um, and the reason he was my favorite player is he played center field and right field. And we usually could only afford to sit in the outfield. So he was like the only player I could actually see, you know, that he was right below me. There's Terry Poole, but he was also a very good player. Um, and 1980, uh, NLCS, he hit 500 for the Astros and that memorable NLCS against the Phillies where four of the five games went extra innings. But uh, one of the cool things for me is years later to to meet Terry and, and interview him on the phone and have him say, hey, man, I've been reading your stuff for a while. And I was like, Terry, Terry, Poole, I grew up watching you for to have, <laughs> to have those kind of relationships. And, you know, someone you grew up idolizing saying that, you know, he liked what you do is like that stuff that's always been cool to me. And it just sort of humbles you about, um, you know, being able to be, uh, you know, to, to touch those players or get to know those players at, at that level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that obviously now, like it's, there's some kids in, in the outfield that are looking out at like Kyle Tucker and Jordan. And they're just like hoping that one day they're in your spot where they get that text. Like, Hey, it's like Jordan telling them, I've read some of your stuff. I love it. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly the greatest DH of all time. One of the greatest DHs of all time is telling me that <laughs> he likes what I read. So, I mean, that's great. And I think it's a great thing for like kids just to strive for, because I think every kid one day wants to be on that field or in some way. And the fact that you're able to accomplish that dream is amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, Reggie Jackson works for the Astros now and I've had lots of conversations with him on the field and I always walk away thinking, I just talked to Reggie Jackson. <laughs> I just had a conversation with him as a guy and, uh, I mean, he was like this legendary figure when I was growing up. You know, I never would have imagined when I was seven or eight, I would ever meet Reggie Jackson or he would know who I was. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is just it really just uh, it takes you back and you just you appreciate those moments and you don't take it for granted because, um, you know, you're on this side of it now and you get to talk to these you know people who you, when you were a kid were just like it was just like Superman. So that that stuff is fun. I love it. And this has been a blast to hear all these different stories from you so far. We've had a blast. We know that you've got a really busy schedule. So we really appreciate you hopping on the show with us today. And as a little appreciation here at the very end on our way out with interviews, we love to ask our guests, since we've had a blast hearing stories from you, 
Do you have anyone else in your baseball journey, maybe someone that's impacted your career or anything like that, that you think would be a cool next person to have on the show to hear their baseball story? Oh, boy, that is boy, that is tough. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been so many people that have impacted me on, you know, my career along the way. You know, a lot of those people are, you know, sort of out of baseball now. Uh, man, I'm going to have to get back, to get back to you on that one. That that, uh, you know, that that that's a tough one. I mean, uh, you know, a couple of the the sort of the, the beat writers who veteran beat writers who were really good to me early on, Neil Holfeld at the Houston Chronicle who uh, covered the Astros, I think for a decade, 80s, 90s, uh, you know, passed away several years ago. But he was, I was intimidated by him when I sat next to him helping cover the Astros. But he was so good to me and, and took me under his wing. And years later, I was the Astros beat writer and he was out helping. And I, I never felt worthy of that. I was felt <laughs> if, if me and Neil are out here, Neil should be the one covering, you know, doing the game story. <laughs> And another another guy was Richard Justice, who was a uh, covered the Orioles for years, been on MLB Network a lot, and worked with me actually at MLB.com. And is now retired somewhat, but, but works for Texas Monthly. Um, another guy who, when they hired him, I was like, "Wow, this is uh, you know, I'm I'm getting to work with Richard Justice." You kind of pinch yourself. And another guy who, who took me under his wing, and you know, I now consider a friend. But you know, so many stories of covering the Orioles back in the day. You know, he he certainly could be somebody you could reach out to as well. But um, you know, you don't you don't get to like anything in life. You don't get to achieve things without, you know, some good fortune, without hard work and, and people helping you the right people helping you out along the way. And, and certainly I've had my share of those people. Absolutely. Well, we sure we've had a blast hearing your story. So I'm sure anyone you recommend is an absolute blast to have on next. But Nico, unless there's anything else you want to throw in, this has been a really great time getting insight into your career journey, learning all about the journalism industry, as well as hearing some Houston Astros baseball and Fingers crossed they can get that extra win in 2024 to get them to that World Series championship. And let's go Astros. And thanks so much for joining us today. All right, guys. Appreciate you having me. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much. So for Dylan Campione, Nico Fernandez, and Brian McTaggart, until the next time, the side is retired. <laughs>